Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Joanna, and welcome to the first episode of Show Your Work of 2018, which we are recording on the last day of 2017. It, 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 I really look forward to uh, doing this podcast circa season seven, and you're like, welcome to the 4,719th episode of Show Your Work. I like counting. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. We are getting started as we do every year um, in January what we do is we roll right into award season. Right. Oh, and so we're rolling right into the first item on our podcast list. Yes. Oh, okay then. Look, unless we have a preamble. <laughs> I mean, I did, but you know, that's okay. What's the preamble? Well, I want to know uh, why you didn't respond on that text thread that we were all on last night. Which one? Last night, we got a text from Dean, uh, who is known to some longtime readers of Laney Gossip. Uh, who said, guys, there's a podcast about celebrities' worst days, wait for it, hosted by Al Lambert from Step by Step. And there are two episodes with Stacey Keenan in them. So Dean texted this to a group of us because this is gold, but I recognize that for some of you, and maybe for Lainey, judging by the way your face looks right now, this is Greek. Is this Greek to you? Greek. Greek. What? Greek. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, uh, you remember the Friday night TGIF lineup? Nope. Oh, you guys help me here. So Friday night TGIF, uh, started with full house. There was, uh, family matters. Perfect strangers was in the mix at some point, but somewhere along the way, they really figured out that kids were watching. And so the zenith of, of TGIF arguably peaked with Step by Step, which was a show about uh, step families blending. Right. Uh, Patrick Duffy was the dad, and Suzanne Summers was the mom. Ah, okay. And they each had, I think, three kids that they were coming in with. Okay. I remember seeing, like, this on magazines and whatever, but and, I like, never And, like, I want to say that of those six children uh, existed, like, the – the six archetypes that you could be in the world at that time. Like right. there was like a dumb blonde. No, sorry. There was a dumb brunette. It was very forward thinking. <laughs> um, and a sarcastic blonde and a tomboy and a, like a tough boy and a, I don't know, a nerd boy. Right. Uh, et cetera. Uh, and so the former tomboy is now all grown up and hosting this podcast. But what Dean loved and what I loved and what you often laugh at me for is that the people who the podcasts are with, so each podcast, I guess, has a, a guest, right? Hi, I'm a celebrity, and here's my worst moments. But they're from, as, as our friend Dean put it, such a specific slice of demi-TV celebrity. Like there's an Andrew Keegan episode. Remember Andrew Keegan from 10 Things I Hate About You? And there's a Beverly Mitchell episode. Beverly Mitchell from 
Seventh Heaven, uh, etc. Stacey Keenan was, of course, very famous for My Two Dads, which she did before Step by Step. She was like a little bit the queen of 1988 to 93. I can't believe this isn't landing with you. No, I realized that like 19, whatever that era that you're talking about on a Friday night, I would never have been home. Well, thanks. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But sorry. No, but this is actually kind of the point. And it's why TGIF was so brilliant from a TV perspective. You're right. Kids of not old enough to go out age are home. Uh, they're home with their parents, and but they started to market to them. They started mm-hmm. to uh, kind of aim everything at the teenagers. In fact, it may have been the rise of the tween uh, who were home around that time uh, and sort of giving tastes that were for co-viewing uh, for the parents, but ultimately aimed at the kids and making like mini tween heartthrobs. Anyway, I have not listened to the podcast. I'm very excited about it. Uh, But I thought it was really interesting uh, because there were, I think, five of us on the thread and some of us were very excited. (laughs) Some abstained completely. That would would be me. I would say it's three and three, actually, uh, (laughs) comment-wise. So, uh, yes, I'm very excited. uh, If if the hosts are listening, uh, I'm excited to check out your work. Uh, but yes, the tiny micro slice of celebrity is something I'm really into. Uh, I bet you a lot of people listening will like recognize all the names and all the shows that you've just listed. Yeah. And that's what's amazing is that, you know, I think we could talk about it again and talk about like, you know, actresses in their 40s who were on short-lived shows about models in the 90s. Like I love tiny, tiny slices like that um, or, you know, long forgotten canceled shows that were on for 10 years. I, I, I'm I really into, or you remember the WB Oh What a Night commercials? No. <gasps> like, I don't know if you're trying to make me feel bad for being old right now or... No, so this is a different era. Uh, in the late 90s when the WB was reaching its peak, they had these commercials uh, mostly set to Oh What a Night. You know, remember that like hit pop, like, you know. I, all I can hear is, oh, what a night. That's the one. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so they had this, like, these commercials that were like all the stars of the WB were hanging out together in a club being super cool. So, you know, uh, Katie Holmes is making eyes at James Vanderbeek, who, like, has his head on Alyssa Milano's tummy, who is, you know, braiding Lauren mm-hmm. Graham's hair, et cetera, et cetera. It was all about... They were all a club who hung out together. Right. This, of course, was patently false, but it was marketing. It worked on us. Um, so I'm, I'm, I like a slice is what I'm learning. Uh, if you like a slice of celebrity, if you like your celebrities sort of like conveniently in a, in a labeled box, hit me up. Let me know. I think this is all the things that you've just talked about is entirely like what Oh No, They Didn't does. Like I sometimes I go on Oh No, It. Sometimes I go on, oh, no, they didn't, and these are the kinds of shows, like, there is a huge or at least a very dedicated internet niche corner for this. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, I'm laughing, but also I think uh, at a time before the internet and before we were old enough to go out and and watch movies and learn this stuff, it, it's kind of like... 
it was celebrities for you. It was aimed directly at you and you could be a fan. And so you had ownership over them and they were yours in a way that I think is probably super, super smart marketing. It's a little bit proto-Disney. Probably if we dig far enough, Disney was behind a lot of those shows in some way, shape, or form. Uh, And, you know, I think the nostalgia is there, but it also taught us to be good pop culture consumers. I feel like there's a whole swath of it that I've missed. Like every time someone tries to talk to me about Topanga, I… <laughs> yeah, Topanga is really uh, seminal for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, for Dean. Yes. Like, Dean has written, I think, several times on Lady <laughs> Gossip about Topanga. What is the show? Boy, Girl… Boy Meets World. Right. There was later a revival come sequel called Girl Meets World. Yeah. Uh, where Corey and Topanga, the stars of the original, were now the parents. There you go. See, I have, yeah, like I have no nothing, but I do know that every time I come across like a Topanga article online, people are like bananas. Topanga, boy meets whatever. Yeah, I have no. No, it's just three words, boy meets world. (laughs) I have no understanding of it at all. Can't even picture what they look like. I also think uh, that How I Met Your Mother tapped into that same private nostalgia and had all those in-jokes that were supposed to be for you in the same way that a TGIF lineup did. Discuss, uh, compare and contrast three reasons why. Okay. Okay. Golden Globes. We are now counting down to the Golden Globes on Sunday. We will then all-nighter it. Don't know what we're going to be writing about now, especially if the dresses are going to be all black. Um, <laughs> Well, this is the thing. We should talk a little bit about the process here. Um, We go into the Golden Globes uh, with a theoretical list of who we might talk about. Uh, In recent years, we've gotten smart and kind of pre-divided who we might write about. Yeah. uh, You know, depending on our particular proclivities or who's been on a rant about what this year or whatnot. And then after the show... We wind up going through the list and going, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. They yeah. don't care. Goodbye. That's right. And it's – so, yeah, it, and it, it's nominees and presenters. So we look at that list usually Sunday morning um, and we divvy it up. Um, this year, Kathleen, we're divvying up with Kathleen as well. Um, and sometimes we fight. No, I want that. No, I want Reese Witherspoon. No, I want Kerry Washington. Um but then you're right. After the show, it's like, what the fuck are we going to say about fucking Reese Witherspoon? It's going to be the same. Some people have moments. Some people don't, you know. And it's about, yeah, writing about who's going to have the the moments. Sometimes it's a star turn. Do you remember what I always remember in recent years is, uh, speaking of niche celebrities, I always remember the moment that Gina Rodriguez became a star. Do you yes. remember? It was, uh, she had won uh, that award that the Golden Globes often gives to a sort of new show or odd show or new star that doesn't fit the mold. But she got up and gave that amazing Mm -hmm. speech about how she was there because her father had taught her to say every day, I can and I will. And she was so poised and so self-assured, even though she was new on the scene, she didn't do the sort of stammering, like fluttering with a sweaty paper thing. And she became a star in that moment. I feel like she sort of upped her quote in that moment. The Golden Globes also gave us sit down. Sit down, Terry Hatcher. Yes. uh, Full credit to uh, our friend Lara and the eTalk newsroom that was happening at the time because she kept, Terry Hatcher kept sort of semi-standing to clap for everybody in a crazy tight mermaid dress. 
So it was awkward for her to be getting mm-hmm. up to begin with, but then it was awkward for her to sit down. Sit down, Terry Hatcher. <laughs> um, during the heyday of Desperate Housewives, obviously, which I really like these cycles where television shows have cycles of domination or at least presence at award shows, and then boop, it's over. Like, do you remember that one of the people who would always be on the pre-list at any of these shows, but especially the Golden Globes, was January Jones? Uh, yeah, sure. We but, waited for January Jones. Yeah, well, because January Jones was, she was the trifecta, right? She was um, on a hot show. She was uh, she was unpredictable mm-hmm. in terms of what she was going to wear or do or et cetera. Um, and she came to play, right? Like she was always kind of in flux. Uh, so yeah, I, as opposed to say somebody who, this is going to be awful, but somebody who has been sort of stably married in a long-term relationship for a long time doesn't always bring a hugely fascinating new look to the red carpet. Uh, I think of Juliana Margulies. I was just going to say that. Like Juliana Margulies has a look that really works for her. She wears like a really tight a uh, lampshade-esque bodice that is just top with a with a hard edge. Yeah. Uh, she does different things with her hair. She does like severe bun or down or whatever, uh, but she takes fewer risks and that may not probably has no corollary to, uh, you know, being in a relationship or not. Don't yell at me. Uh, but it does sometimes seem like the singles are coming to play, but also come to play, you know? Well, there's, there's been, there have been times when we've looked at the list and there's Juliana Margulies and we've been like, ugh, who wants this? What are we going to say? Well, because you feel like you've said it in previous years. Um, but if somebody does something new, then there's something new to say. The other thing that I want to point out, and this is not for this year, but I just want to put this on the record. You know who we used to see at the Golden Globes and we used to see at the Emmy Awards? Kiernan Shipka. Yes. We used to see Kiernan Shipka, who played Sally Draper, and she was, you know, she ascended from being, I think, 9 to 16 or so on that show, and she had this really age-appropriate but still interesting style evolution, and then she stopped coming. Guys, stop going when you don't have a thing to show up for, because I think members of the Academy who, and she would be a member, I don't know if you can be a member underage. That's an interesting question. But let's say that she's a member of the Academy. She can vote. She can whatever. People get invitations to things still. And she could still be photographed on the carpet. But if you stop going, then when you go again, people are super excited to see you. Are you saying that to Millie Bobby Brown? <sighs> I uh, No, because Millie Bobby Brown is – and I, I don't want to bring us down here. We're having, a, we're having fun. <laughs> But Millie Bobby Brown, who is 13 years of age as of this podcast, I believe, uh, is not the person driving her own career. Uh, So, you know, I wish her very well, but I feel like there are other people in charge there. And, you know, I don't know if Kiernan Shipka is going to be an actress in her adult life, but if she shows up in two or three years and is like, hey, I made a film on, you know, between semesters at whatever liberal arts college I'm at, we're going to be like, oh my God, Kiernan Shipka's back and it will Sally be exciting. Sally Draper. So here's who we are talking about this year. And this is related to probably one of the most interesting races at the Golden Globes. 
And that's the category Best Supporting Actress in a Series, Miniseries, or Motion Picture Made for Television. Probably one of the most competitive. I mean, a lot of them are quite competitive. But what's interesting about this at the Golden Globes is at the Emmys, I believe they separate the supporting categories for series and slash like miniseries and motion picture made for television. That's right. Like Golden Globes are wonky as hell because it's movies and TV. And the TV categories uh, are separated for the leads. But yes, for the supporting roles, series and limited series and miniseries are all mashed together, which is why we get the world's most hilarious category. Here are the nominees. Ready? Laura Dern in Big Little Lies, Anne Dowd in The Handmaid's Tale, Chrissy Metz in This Is Us, Michelle Pfeiffer in The Wizard of Lies, and Shailene Woodley in Big Little Lies. Now, Anne Dowd and Laura Dern both won Emmys because in because at the Emmys, those supporting categories are separated, so they weren't going head-to-head. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of the voters uh, here, I, I don't know if they overlap, but certainly they could be influenced by uh, previous wins. There might be people who would say, oh, well, they've won. I could put my vote elsewhere. On the other hand, how do you compare the work of, say, a Chrissy Metz who gets to work every week, uh, world without end, relative to an Anne Dowd who, you know, played a role in a 10-part miniseries that was, at the time, a limited series. Um, (laughs) uh, So, you know, or Laura Dern, who I think only appears in five or six of the seven Big Little Lies episodes. So it's a really wacky kind of contrast. And if you were, so if you were voting, if you were one of the weirdo 90 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Let's just uh, take a second there. It's so small. It's like fucking crazy. 90 people. 90 people make this giant television event, arguably one of the best sort of work gossip discussions of the year comes out of the minds and hearts of 90 people. And they're weirdos. Like, some of them, nobody knows what the last thing they've done, like, you know, where they write, who they report for. It's just a bizarre little organization that makes bizarre decisions, and it brings us a lot of joy. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the decisions are bang on, and sometimes they're a bit uh, prescient, uh, which is a word I always avoid saying out loud, because you're never sure how you're going to land on those syllables. Uh, They are sometimes have a lot of foresight, but yeah, sometimes they're wacky. Like, if it's the... If it's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and their tendency to be glamorized by celebrities, which that's an established fact. Uh, Can you unpack that a little bit, please? You're saying that the Hollywood Foreign Press wants... Superstars. Which is to say the more people you nominate who are big stars, the Mm -hmm. more will come. The more will come, the more will show up, the more they get to sit with, the more they get to hang out with, have pictures taken with. Yeah, but why doesn't that work for, like, um, the Critics' Choice Awards or the People's (laughs) Choice Awards? Like, that should also apply. But the stars show up for the Golden Globes in a way that they don't for some of those other shows. Yeah, and I I do think that it's because the Golden Globes, first of all, they have a great name. Like, Golden Globes is a great name. You're right, actually. And all the euphemisms that come from there. 
there's name recognition with the Golden Globes, ratings recognition. I mean, this is the show that NBC airs that um, it's the almost, yeah, we come out of the gate in January before award season fatigue has set in, right? Like the Oscars are in March this year. By March, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to be like, fuck, another award show. By then, you know, the SAGs will have happened. The Grammys will have happened. Um, it'll be three months of a relentless award show season and everybody's just like, get over with now. Um, but the like in January, we're all fresh back from the holidays. We're like, yay, give me a red carpet. Give me some dresses to look at. Give me a dinner party where I get to look at who's, you know, leering at one person and who won't walk by the table of the other person. A lot of people watch the Golden Globes. I would argue that people get more excited about the Globes than they do about probably the Oscars. And it's because of the the mashup potential too, right? Like uh, yeah. I'm going to get back to your question about who would I award in that category in a second. Uh, but I just want to point out some of the nominees in these categories because it's amazing. You know, you have, uh, for example, uh, your big nominations for uh, movie actresses like uh, Helen Mirren and Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan and so forth, Jessica Chastain and Meryl Streep, uh, who will be alongside like... Issa Rae and Alison Brie, who are nominated in the, you know, television and com- musical or comedy category. Like Will McCormack, Will McCormack, pardon me, Eric McCormack <laughs> and Jason Bateman are going to be there like alongside Guillermo del Toro. You know, it's a great uh, sort of cross section of what's happening in Hollywood, which is amazing. So... To that end, uh, to get back to your question about this amazing category, best performance by an actress in a supporting role, uh, you know, they tell you when you're taking like multiple choice tests, you toss out the top the top and the bottom, right? Yep. So, okay, toss out Shailene Woodley because she doesn't watch television. So, <laughs> yep, gone. She is not entitled Bye. to be a part of this discussion. Uh, and then I think... Think I think we have to uh, exclude Chrissy Metz here because, as I say, uh, sure her show is an ongoing series, uh, and thus is kind of not the same category here as all of the others. Uh, she's going to have a chance to be nominated again next year, and so on and so forth. This is us was weirdly nominated. Or pardon me, this is us was weirdly renewed for two seasons at the end of its first one. So there's more opportunities here. Also, don't you find that like at at the awards level, it's always Sterling carrying the This Is Us hardware? Well, uh, yes, people give him awards because he's head and shoulders above the rest of that cast. But this is not Chrissy Metz's first nomination. Uh, she had an Emmy nomination and Mandy Moore has also had nominations. They've split those two in categories when we're doing this math for the Emmys. Uh, I just don't think this is where she's going to get to win here. You might think that the wise choice would be to throw out Michelle Pfeiffer, but there's a strong nostalgia factor for Michelle Pfeiffer. And the Golden Globes and Hollywood in general love somebody who kind of comes back after not having been in play for a while, right? I'm pretty sure like those 90 weirdos um, that make up the Hollywood Foreign Press Association love like, still look at Michelle Pfeiffer and see fabulous Baker Boys. So, okay, uh, because you say there are 90 of them, and of course, uh, we enjoy and respect you, Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, we do not think you are weirdos. <laughs> um, so now we're left with Laura Dern, Ann Dowd, and Michelle Pfeiffer. 
Right. Uh, I'm going to say, ultimately, Michelle Pfeiffer only maybe gets a third of those votes, mm-hmm. right? That's maximum. So we have 60 left to play with. Yeah. Laura Dern in Big Little Lies or Anne Dowd in The Handmaid's Tale. As you said, both earned Emmy awards uh, and both had great performances. Uh, and now does it come down to celebrity? Is that what it is? Yes. I feel that Anne Dowd has had the stronger performance, although it's hard to uh, it's hard to argue about that because they were both so great. But Laura Dern is having a moment. Like a year-long moment. Right. Um, in fact, there was a great Vulture article that you sent to me uh, a couple of days ago, and I think the title was, you know, the world wasn't ready for Laura Dern until now. Uh, it, you know, she's she's also one of those people who maybe was ahead of her time for a while, and she's now, the timing couldn't be better, right? Like, she's in The Last Jedi, which is still huge and will be huge in theaters when uh, Golden Globes are happening and certainly when the voting was going on. Uh, the star turn, so to speak, that she had in Big Little Lies, she's going to get to reprise it. So I think this is hers. I think this is hers too. I agree with you that if we're basing it on straight up head-to-head performance to performance and Dowd to Laura Dern, um, Handmaid's Tale to Big Little Lies, I'd give it to Anne Dowd too. But Again, we're talking about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. We're talking about campaigning. We're talking about all kinds of buzz. I don't know where, like, I do not know where Ann Dowd is. Haven't seen her. Haven't seen any sort of presence, any for your consideration, like, out there, handing out cookies, you know, talk show appearances. But Laura Dern has been everywhere. Well, and let's just parse that one more level. Uh, It's hard for anybody who is nominated to just go out there and campaign on their own, right? At minimum, you need your management or your uh, representation to say, hey, we should make a push. Uh, That often needs bankrolling, dresses and appearances and things like that, which come usually from a studio for the movie that you're promoting or uh, the project that you're working on or so forth. Uh, And again, sorry, what's the project that Laura Dern's in? That might have a little money to promote her? Oh, all of them? <laughs> Whereas, of course, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, if they were going to do some, some promoting and some campaigning, uh, they have a, an arguably stronger horse to promote in Elizabeth Moss. Uh, or in, uh, I would have thought that Samira Wiley would have been getting more attention. Uh, but, uh, you know... She's not, but she's still a part of this. uh, She's not nominated, I should say, but uh, she's obviously still an interesting part of the cast who will very likely make some appearances uh, and is, uh, you know, the show is nominated for Best Television Series as Drama. She'll definitely be there. Uh, There are other horses, I guess, is what I'm saying here, to run, which is too bad for Ann Dowd because I think she's pretty spectacular. I agree. I I just think that, like, the... I don't know, the, uh, the, the, the star of Laura Dern this year in 2017 or this past year, 2017, just can't be ignored, right? Like, it's Big Little Lies. It's not just that she was in The Last Jedi, but her role in The Last Jedi had so many people talking. 
people like I have a, I've seen it so many times and every time she comes on screen and she starts talking I have a boner. I love her in the movie. She's so great. She also has pedigree. So she is Hollywood royalty in the sense of her who her parents are, Diane Ladd and Bruce Dern. She was in the running uh, to be the Academy Oscar Academy president before she dropped out of the race because oh she was getting offered too many acting roles. Right, 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 right. Like, it's not yet time for me to pick up my mantle. That's right. Yes. But to go back to that Vulture article that I sent to you about the time, being in the time of Laura Dern, she said in that article, and I found this really, really interesting, that um, someone told her, it was either her dad or Steven Spielberg, so whatever, (laughs) take your pick about who's, like, you know, more influential, Um, in her life, I mean. Um, said, you know what? You are going to come into your time in your 40s and your 50s. Like, praise God. You know, people don't appreciate you now, and your particular skill set is going to be valued when you are in your 40s and 50s, and you will work nonstop, and you will have the roles that, like, everybody is waiting for you to inhabit. And, well, she's 50. There's some insight there, you know, in terms of looking at different kinds of talent and going, this is for now and this is for later and so forth. It's also maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that to be the case, then you approach things in your 40s and 50s as, oh yeah, no, this is my time. I have this. This is my role. This is things are being presented for me. It's also exciting because, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but there was a time when that was kind of a silly thing to say. There weren't careers for women in their 40s and 50s in the same way uh, that that a Laura Dern is enjoying, and she's not the only one. I don't want to be too Mary Sunshine about what's happening. There are still far, far fewer roles for women than for men, but we are not looking in any category here at a series of 20-something ingenues the way I feel we might have been 20 years ago. And it's funny you say ingenue because one of the recurring comments that you and I have been making this season on the podcast is, you know, I think we brought it up the first time this season with respect to Margot Robbie, how when Margot Robbie arrived on the scene, she arrived a fully formed woman. Yes, absolutely. And the comparison then was to Julia Roberts, which, you know, you have always mentioned that Julia Roberts, even though she was 18 when we first, quote unquote, met her, Mm -hmm. seemed grown. And so when I was reading this um, Vulture piece on Laura Dern, um, she talked about being in Jurassic Park. And Steven Spielberg was directing her in Jurassic Park. It's a huge movie. Everybody knows it. But when I think back to Laura Dern in Jurassic Park from, what, 1997, 96? I I was just actually going to Google that silently as you were talking. I'm thinking it was a lot earlier. I think it was 94. Stand by, please. Anyway, so while you're Googling it, she says in this interview, I was 23 when I was shooting that movie with Steven Spielberg. And I, like, I actually sat back in my chair while reading and I was like, 23? Because I watched that movie and I thought she was 30. I thought she was 35, for sure. I'm about to blow your mind. Movie was released... June 9th, 1993. Wow. So if that movie at that time would have taken a year in post, so she was 23 in 92, you said she's 50. We might have to check the math a little bit yeah. there. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was, yes, that was what was seen as a 
grown woman at the time, right? Right. She wore sensible blouses. She was yes. a woman. And now we think of a 23-year-old as barely old enough to drive. That's right. Like Selena Gomez is 25. That's always the reference. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the women of in this mold, right, of, of the Laura Derns um, and, you know, even of like the Elizabeth Banks who, who arrive – fully formed and who who have to wait or not wait but who come into their own and have these peaks or at least ascend and ascend and ascend and finally at 50 she's having a career year and who's to say that 2018 because she's got three more movies coming out in 2018 isn't going to be even bigger than 2017 it's really interesting as you say about I don't know that we would have been talking about these kinds of opportunities like 20 years ago I don't think so I think it would have been a different story whereas uh, you know, by contrast, and one is not better than the other, but you have to kind of know your lane. Saoirse Ronan is nominated for Lady Bird. She is uh, 23, nominated for playing uh, a 17-year-old. Uh, and a really lovely, like, authentic performance of a 17-year-old. But I feel like maybe 20 years ago, we wouldn't have allowed that. First of all, as I've said earlier on this podcast, a, a coming-of-age story of a 17-year-old woman, 17-year-old girl, would not have been considered to be Golden Globes material uh, 20 years ago, so that's something. But also, uh, you know, the aging down or aging up is something that now different actresses have opportunities to kind of lean into their strength as opposed to trying to fit themselves all into the same category. It's very encouraging. But yeah, Laura Dern's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Uh, you know, I was scanning as we were talking, and I don't know if there's any other race that is as, you know, uh, mathematical to parse uh, in terms of who's going to win. Obviously, the best supporting actress in uh, in a motion picture is a stacked category, but there are favorites there too. That's the Mary J. Blige, Hong Chow, Allison Janney, Laurie Metcalf, Octavia Spencer category. Uh, and I think we all know where the smart money is and where the like risky money is. And the other three will be very happy to be nominated. Right. But in keeping with the Golden Globes uh, making sometimes interesting, odd, uh, unexpected choices, uh, there is a nominee uh, for best television comedy, uh, and actually for best performance in a television comedy, uh, for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and for Rachel Brosnahan as Mrs. Maisel or Midge. Uh, and it's, it's very curious to me because this is an odd place for a show like this. So, uh, for the uninitiated, this is an Amazon original. This is Amy Sherman Palladino's uh, next project post Gilmore Girls. Uh, and I've been really, really surprised at the amount of attention that it has gotten uh, and the type of critical attention that it has gotten. Uh, you know, we sort of talk a lot about how women are portrayed on in shows, in movies, etc. And Gilmore Girls is always seen with a uh, an affection by critics, right? Like there's a lot of like, oh, it's super smart, but it's super sweet. And uh, I have always maintained that it's actually like a cautionary tale about wealth and class, uh, but it's a product of its time in a lot of ways. There are things about it that are 
evident of having been developed at the WB in, you know, in 1999 and 2000. So The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is really out and up front uh, as, I don't know, there's no apologies or asterisks beside it being nominated in all these categories. And so what did you think about that? Well, as as you mentioned earlier at the start of, of this Golden Globes discussion, what the Golden Globes, even though they make some bonkers decisions sometimes, and, the, you know, my favorite example is always the tourist or Pia Zadora, um, <laughs> um, they have always been very good at recognizing well before the TV Academy and well before even the SAGs, the new shows and the new talent, especially like in television. I mean, it was really, really quick with um, uh, uh, Jane the Virgin. Um, we've seen it also with um, the uh, the um, oh my god, what's the the hacker show? Oh, halt and catch fire. No, um, but yes, but yes. Um, uh, oh, you mean Mr. Robot? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. And the affair and yes. my crazy ex girlfriend. That's right. And all kinds of shows that you maybe heard of, but right. that aren't on. One thing the Golden Globes do really well is they move outside the confines of broadcast television. That's right. And that is uh, much more common now, but three to five years ago, that was uh, a big deal, that uh, it was the Golden Globes who was like, hey, this show on on the CW, on, yep. uh, you know, Hulu, yep. on, uh, God, what is the affair on, Bravo? Um, that uh, that they were like, maybe TNT? Showtime? Yeah, Showtime. There you go. Yeah. Uh, that they were sort of extending their reach to all these really quality shows that didn't necessarily have the yep. attention. And the reason why that feels especially refreshing from the Golden Globes is because at the Emmys and at the SAGs, shows like Modern Family and Big Bang Theory, and they have long-ass runs. I mean, it's five, six, seven years, and it's the same comedy. It, it actually happens in comedy a lot at, in, at the Emmys, where it is the same comedy nominated over and over again. Well, this is because, uh, and we've talked about this for the past couple of years, it's the same voters year after year after year, right? Over and over again. It's the same people. Often, because of the way these academies are made up, it's, well, my friend is the art director on that show, or I know who cast that, or whatever. So the nominations keep coming in for the same places. This is another way that the Hollywood Foreign Press, God bless them, as outsiders, <laughs> I'm, I'm not mad at them. I'm sorry. <laughs> and complete strangers often. <laughs> yeah, but they're outsiders. They're complete strangers. So they're going on what they like, not on, you know, who they worked with on a TV movie 15 years ago. And that's really it's more pure in a way. Yeah. Um, and it also allows for uh, more, you know, I've been looking at the nominations, the TV nominations over uh, over the last few years, like in the time of Fraser, of, uh, of Friends, of The Sopranos, shows were, as you said, nominated year after year after year. Uh, and now every year is kind of a grab bag of, let's see, let's check out what happens next. I was, I mean, I know that you had been on me about um, Mrs. Maisel for, I don't know, since like September. Well, I mean, yeah. So the pilot, uh, which was 
not necessarily available to everybody to be viewed. The critics were talking about how great it was. And then the whole series dropped uh, just before the holidays and uh, has been really, really favorable. And I don't think you've watched any yet. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Like, what is it about the idea or the show or that is not taking priority in your viewing? Well, to be fair to me, um, just... (laughs) Yes, by all means. Uh, if you're here on a website called Laney Gossip, let's be fair to Laney. <laughs> to be fair to me, um, I've watched nothing. So it's December 31st. I have essentially tried not to leave my house. And you'd think that that would be conducive to lots of binge watching. But for some reason, all I've done is check out. I just watch really bad movies. Right. And I get that. That I've seen before. Sure. I Look, at my house, uh, every day we sort of say what are we going to watch tonight? And we discuss all the new options that we should see. I haven't seen Mindhunter, you guys. Uh, And we continue watching The Sopranos, uh, which is amazing. So I get it. I do. No, I don't think that you watching The Sopranos on like the first viewing, because you've never seen it before. Well, I haven't, but my, uh, my other half has, so. Right. But from your perspective, you're actually in your, your defined laziness is actually homework. Because you're watching it for the first time. You're watching one of the most seminal peak TV series of all time for the first time. That's homework. You're actually doing something productive. When I say that I'm watching shit-ass movies, I've watched Mr. and Mrs. Smith three times. I've watched The Die Hards several times. Okay. Um, you know, we're going in an unexpected direction <laughs> so here. So that's my first. I haven't watched any. I haven't watched Stranger Things season two. Yep. Um, there's a mi- there are a million TV shows I have not caught up on. So, no, I have not watched Despite Your Nagging, Maisel. But it's not nagging. Like, I, you said since September, but in fact, I haven't talked a lot to you about it since I watched it. Uh, but it's interesting that you say, oh, it's work. Uh, I actually commented last night. So Mike really gets frustrated when I talk about uh, kind of how the sausage is made of TV Uh, if I watch a show and then I'm like, oh, well, now she's going to go and like sleep with that guy or commit suicide or whatever. He's like, can you not? Yeah. Like this is enjoyment for other humans who don't do this. Uh, but it is helpful obviously often to see how a show is made. Interestingly, I do not do this in supremely well-crafted shows because I can't see where the seams are happening. And The Sopranos is one of those for sure. It's pure enjoyment. But the other thing is that I think I think all of us talk about a lot of shows this way, the way you did. Haven't seen this. I haven't done this. Even though you've been nagging, I just did it. I haven't watched Mindhunter. Like, don't yell at me. Uh, there's more and more of an idea that we have to undertake these series and then watch them all really fast and then form an opinion. Um, so as for Mrs. Maisel, which I am enjoying and which is – you know, has some really interesting things to say about women in comedy as well as kind of taking on women's roles in the 50s, which is, you know, not unexplored territory, but doing it from a neat perspective. I'm mostly interested in the idea that the Golden Globes and critics in general are approaching this series without the asterisk of girls TV that has followed Amy Sherman Palladino before. Uh, There was a profile in what is essentially the Show Your Work textbook, Vulture, uh, of Amy Sherman Palladino uh, a few couple months ago now that is quite exciting about talking about how she approaches her work. Uh, And I I appreciate that there's no sort of 
whiff of teenagerdom around her or around it. So that's what was most interesting to me. But is there anything else about it that makes you go, eh, this is not the one that's next up on the list? Well, like, because I, I know had, you. If I had to fire it up tomorrow. If I had to, let's just watch <laughs> the language here. Yes. Um, the show that I would start that you've been telling me to start would be The Americans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. And I mean, that's a, that's a, a longer, more intense ride. Uh, you know, it's apples to oranges a little bit. The Americans is uh, coming up on six seasons of intrigue and fascination and like sexual tension, which I know you love. Uh, Mrs. Maisel, by contrast, is one season and it's lighter and it's not, it doesn't have that depth yet. So I can't argue with that choice. Like, fine, fine. Like, I'm Sisyphus here. Like, <laughs> I just have more work to do now. Um, but it's interesting in, in terms of what choices we make, in terms of what is the next thing to sort of focus on, to consume, to to kind of make a part of your repertoire. So what's the takeaway here? Given that you are a how the sausage is made kind of person, um, your poor husband, <laughs> um, and we, as we approach the Golden Globes, and Mrs. Maisel probably won't win. I would say probably not. Uh, the do you mean uh, in the TV series uh, comedy? Yeah, no chance. No chance. No chance. Uh, that category is Blackish, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Master of None. Smilf, uh, and Will and Grace. Uh, so, I mean, that's all over the place, but I think the smart money is on Blackish or Master of None because they are, and this is hilarious, uh, because of who and how they're created, but those are the most universal shows. Mm -hmm. So that's my, that's my gut. That said, obviously the Golden Globes has given Mrs. Maisel a platform. Like people are like, wait, I know Blackish, I know Master of None. What is this Smilf? And what is this marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Right. That's great. Yes. For our listeners, if they are to be a little bit more accommodating <laughs> and… Than you. Let's finish <laughs> yes. that sentence. Yes. <laughs> Than me. What is, what is the takeaway? What is the value of Mrs. Maisel during peak TV in our current television landscape. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So it's such a great question because I think that as we sort of get more comfortable with new things that we're seeing and, you know, uh, hey, women can headline a show. Imagine that with big little lies. Like, I know it sounds like I'm I'm being silly, but that was an actual conversation that was happening only about a year ago. But this show is all women. Is Are people going to watch it? Are men going to watch it? Uh, so I think that now what we're getting comfortable with is watching women in uh, prestige television 
in all kinds of situations. So The Handmaid's Tale is all about the, the story of all kinds of women and how they bond together or, or not. Uh, so is Big Little Lies. But those are shows with really serious, dramatic storylines. Now this is about watching uh, a show like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has societal things to say, but also going, okay, so this is a show about, primarily about a friendship between two unlikely women, uh, Rachel Brosnahan and Alex Borstein, who as soon as you see her, you'll be like, oh yeah, her. Uh, And going, okay, so the actual things that are happening have a real comedic tone here, but is there as much depth and layer, is there, are there as many layers, as much depth as there are in the so-called dramatic shows uh, to make a relationship like this worthy of watching? And I say, yeah, and it's also a real reflection of what's happening. Uh, Lady Bird is the same concept. It's ultimately about relationships between women where nothing really dire happens. And that's what's really exciting is that this is about going, no, you can have something that is relatively comedic and that can be worthy of acclaim. Seinfeld was about the comedic relationships between men for dozens of years. Uh, You know, our, I'm sure we could list hundreds of others. Uh, Fraser, again, to, you know, to make that super current reference. Uh, So now we're going, okay, now we can watch relationships between women on screen and they can be fascinating and interesting and worthy of awards, even if they're not about totalitarian regimes or domestic abuse. Uh, And, you know, there's room for all of this. That's what's exciting to me. I'll consider it. Well, (laughs) how anointed are we? Okay, here's what kills me about this, though, is that on the one hand, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll consider it. On the other hand, here's the thing that you're spending your leisure time on. Besides seeing Star Wars. Besides seeing Star Wars repeatedly. Okay, so I get, let me just, let me just let everybody know how this happened. (laughs) Duanna and I, one of the things that does bond us is our fascination with the secret life of teenagers. There's a whole underground world that if you are grown you don't know anything about. Maybe you do, Duanna, because you are like tapped into what's in production. But, you know, a few years ago, there was this whole thing called MagCon. Do you well, remember yeah, MagCon? Okay. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, that's, yes. The Secret Life of Teenagers, I should be specify here. You are not talking about the Secret Life of the American Teenager, uh, which is the not that great show that launched Shailene Woodley upon the world. no. Uh, I'm but, just talking about the general secret life of teenagers since time immemorial. But I kind of hilariously object to the word secret because they're having it right out loud. Right out loud, right in the open. And yet, like, so much of what we, and when I say we, I mean collectively, like, society. Like, I I am, go ahead. You mean Adults. I'm sorry yes. to tell you. <laughs> I mean adults. I, I got to interrupt us for a story. Since we're having a, a kind of free form <laughs> podcast today, uh, some years ago now, uh, five years ago uh, and change, I got married. Uh, and uh, you were the mistress of ceremonies, right? You uh, appointed Correct. yourself the MC. You were an excellent MC. Uh, and at a certain point in your remarks, 
What year was it that you got married? 2011? 12. 2012. Okay, so I was, I just want to give the age. Set the scene. Yes, of course. I was, I would have been 39. Okay, very good. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, you made a really awesome speech that everybody enjoyed. My father still tells me that Lenny is so courageous. But at one point, you made, uh, a, a, I don't know, some sort of joke that might have been taken, you know, a couple of ways, maybe a bit like risque. And then you said, calm down, adults. It's fine. I want to point out that at 39, <laughs> you did not count yourself as one of the adults. True. Which is why every time we learn something about the secret life of teenagers and we're, I'm, I'm not going to speak for you. I, I'll speak for me. And I'm like, what? I didn't know about this. I feel very offended. You feel offended that they're not including you in this kind or of thing. Or h- how did I miss it? So, which brings us to MagCon. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a glorious article that I know you still have the link to. Oh, I do. Uh, that kind of introduced us to a layer of YouTube celebrities that we had not known about at the time. I think at the time it was Vine. Like, that's oh how... God. I know. It was Vine. Oh, my God. So Even they were... Yeah. The platform is now gone. Yeah. So it was Vine, and it was, like, five or six cute boys who made their rise on Vine. Sean Mendez was one of them. But he wasn't even the most famous at the time. No. Um, there was, uh, of course, uh, Cameron of Chasing Cameron, Cameron Dallas, uh had a reality show about his life as a social media influencer at a time when nobody knew what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was fascinating. It was delicious. And the thing that you loved most about it, I think that we loved most about it, is that it was about these teenagers who were social media stars, who had their home, who had their whole uh, personal celebrity ecosystem, as did the kids on TGIF. Note the tie-ins oh here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But they were also conducting their personal relationships on the various platforms. That's right. And MagCon is the convention that their one of their dads put together. Um, and MagCon sta- and MagCon stands for Meet and Greet Convention. So the dad gathered five or six of the most popular Vine boys, and they would like gather around, or they would tell people, "Hey." These kids will be at the mall somewhere in whatever, Ohio, and like thousands of people would show up at the mall. Now, let's just unpack this here. Number one, thousands of people. Number two, if you doubt this, watch the first 20 seconds of that show, Chasing Cameron. Uh, He talks about how nobody understands how big his fame is, and he talks about what happens when he tweeted what hotel he was going to be at in, I believe it's Rome. It's Rome, yeah. And then they show a shot from his hotel balcony of the street below his hotel. It looks like Michael Jackson in the 90s. Yeah. It looks like Madonna in Truth or Dare. It's Beatles, it's Bieber, it's Jackson, it's Truth or Dare. It's all of that. It's insane. And then third, I want to point out that some dad had the – foresight and calculation to host a con to create more fame and arguably more money. I don't know if this is one of those $50 for a picture cons, but I wouldn't doubt it, uh, to create celebrity for random kids. Yep. 
But again, a lot of these people, I mean, we're talking about it right now, are probably not household names. If you asked a 12-year-old, sure. But when I say, like, you walk down the street anywhere and you poll, you know, 10 people and you say, who's Cameron Dallas? Or you say, who's, what's MagCon? I don't know. And this is, what's, this is what became fascinating for us. We're like, holy shit, this world is so influential for the people it's targeting. And yet, not a household name. Because maybe there aren't household names anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe old people don't matter. Yes. I wish, I really, I'm going to make a proposal right now for future podcasts. I'm going to have my phone open and just snap photos of your reactions (laughs) because the face you just made when I said we don't matter was uh, pathos and pain and all kinds of glory. But here's why it needs to matter. And, you know, for the people out there who like to yell at me and say, oh my God, you're uh, arrested development and, you know, grow up. I get it. I should grow up. But at the same time, this is the future. Uh, This may be the future of gossip. This may be the future of fame hierarchy. May nothing. It's happening. There you go. Because here's another thing that happened that we didn't know about until you sent me this article. This is all a preamble to hashtag Hanny. Just (laughs) privately in in your own earbuds right now, raise your hand if you know what hashtag Hanny is. Don't Google Yeah, none of you. I know that. There are like three of you who are like, yeah, I'm 23, and why don't these women know about hashtag Hanny? But largely, no, you did not know. So allow us to let you in. Well, the Daily Beast um, introduced me to Hanny um, on December 28th. I obviously immediately sent it to Duanna with lots of exclamation points, but the title… The title of the article is How Fans Invented Hashtag Hanny, the Ultimate Social Media Super Couple. Hayden Summerall and Annie LeBlanc are basically, I'm going to slow this down, Hayden Summerall and Annie LeBlanc are basically Brangelina for the next generation. Brangelina! So there is like a world, a secret world of teenagers, and for them, they've found their Brangelina. Okay, but like let's let's uh, I want to give a little bio here. This says the two currently star in Chicken Girls, a scripted YouTube series that has become mutsy TV for Generation Z. This is a Canadian podcast, uh, and so this is all about. So these two are quote massive social media celebrities in their own right. And then they appeared in a vlog together, and people got really excited about them. And they made the ship name, the hashtag Hanny, right? Right. Which is Hayden and Annie. Yes. Right. And so we don't really know if Hayden and Annie or hashtag Hanny is actually a real thing. Both of them are being quite strategically coy about not confirming but not denying that they're dating in real life IRL. Um, (laughs) but, But the point is, is that the fans the secret lives of teenagers. These teens are spending a lot of time hoping and wishing this into existence. Well, I want to make, let's make, well, let's be even clearer about that because I have, I skipped over arguably the best paragraph in this article, which says, it wasn't tabloid editors or film executives who forged a relationship between the two young social media stars. It was the internet, specifically 
online fans who begged and begged and begged for these two to get together. This is a fanship that has come into being. Like this is fans thought they should be a couple. They shipped them. You know what I'm talking about if you were a Vampire Diaries fan or a, God, did ship start with Twilight? Is that where this began? No, I think it started with some, like some super nerdy, maybe like Star Trek-y, like that kind of thing. There were relationships on Star Trek? Whatever. Like, I'm not saying it was definitely Star Trek, but it was like a geeky, yeah, some sort of geek offshoot. If this geek offshoot turns out to be like the show Supernatural, you're in big trouble. (laughs) But this is what's happening here is that we're literally watching a couple who, as you say, may or may not be a couple who were magicked into being because the fans wanted them to be. That's mind-blowing. Well, how is it different from Twilight? Well, I mean, Twilight was about... A scripted characters, right? That was about wanting uh, Team Edward or Team, what was the other guy? Jacob, right? Sure. Jacob. Taylor Lautner, right? right? Yeah. But, you know, the fact that Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart then dated, allegedly, maybe, for a while, uh, was, that was sort of separate, Right. This is about these two real-life individuals who go by their own names, Hayden Summerall and Annie LeBlanc, are now dating, either in real life or for the YouTube cameras, because the fans wanted them to. This is either magic or some big brother shit right here. (laughs) And the future of gossip. Well, okay, but let's, how do you mean the future of gossip? Obviously, they are, like, they're famous, they're learning to court the press, and uh, they are on the cover of Tiger Beat magazine, so they matter. But how do you mean the future of gossip? Well, so this is, as we keep hearing, a generation that is fueled by, shaped by how many likes they get. So you can't be 16 anymore and not have that kind of social media presence, right? You have whatever the next Instagram is going to be, whatever Snapchat is, you live online. And for many of this generation, your online existence depends on who likes your pictures, how many people like them, how many people like them versus the person in the classroom next door. And so when you have a generation that puts so much emphasis and significance on likes, and then you have a creative class that comes out of this generation that is full that comes out of this generation and and sees the value in it that creativity has it been or will it be compromised by the need to be liked but how is that different from you know being a box office star like that used to be sort of the gauge right julia roberts became julia roberts not just because of the smile and the hair but because she could to use the lingo, open a movie, right? Julia Roberts can star in a movie with her name alone above the title and make it a hit. That's what she was and is. When rom-coms were happening, Reese Witherspoon could too. That's just likes. Julia Roberts wasn't like, Julia Roberts still at the time felt free to fall in love with Lyle Lovett. (laughs) 
right? And do you remember our reaction when Julia Roberts decided to fall in love and marry Lyle Lovett? We were like, huh? Now, in this current world, would either Hayden or Annie have the freedom to actually fall in love with their Lyle Lovett? Of course they do, because this is the magic of the internet. Because if a Hayden or an Annie introduces Lyle Lovett, it's going to be hashtag Lyle, hashtag like Lanny. People are going to love that person because they're introduced on that platform. Now I think that you're um, Mary Sunshine. I don't think so. Because I think that the what they will do is we feel betrayed. How could you betray hashtag Hanny? Hanny for life, Hanny forever. On the one hand, sure. But on the other hand, that's I see hashtag Hanny for life and so forth. That's almost of a previous generation because this is the generation who's online all the time. They're going to get bored. Like if, let me, let me take it to a couple of your faves here, shall we? (laughs) Let's talk about Justin and Selena, who were, would you say they were one of the first couples, the first uh, legit couples to live out their relationship on social media? Is that fair? Maybe the biggest, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know how they're doing and you tell me how they're doing (laughs) based on what's happening on their Instagram (laughs) where they're vacationing or what they, who they are or are not following. It's a, yes, it's as simple as like, is she following him? Did she like his pictures? Did he like her pictures? Did he follow her? Right. Like you and Kathleen let me know that things were not well with <laughs> Selena in the weekend because he stopped following her mom. Correct. Right. <laughs> so let's say they are the biggest, right? They're also savvy. There are dramas there. There's makeups and breakups and so forth. If I follow hashtag Hanny and all is still well, things are still good, it's just pictures of them together or episodes of their shows together, I'm going to get bored and go somewhere else. Everybody has the attention span of a gnat, including we Luddite adults. So of course there have to be dramas and new characters, and new people brought into this ecosystem. The question, I guess, is do they exist? Uh, You know, the question is… That's where your big brother comment comes in. Yeah, right. Is it real or is it manufactured? My question is, I mean, like, let's just be real here. You said Julia Roberts with Lyle Lovett, A, because he was not, you know, as physically attractive as the, like, Kiefer Sutherland's or Jason Patrick's or whatever that she had been dating, arguably, depending on your taste. Yes? Yes. But also he was a country star. He wasn't in the world, right? My question, like, let me clarify my position here. I think that Annie or Hayden, God, it doesn't have to be, or both, God, who knows what happens with these young teens, but... Either or both of them could for sure date today's Lyle Lovett. Uh, And it doesn't matter what he looks like. What does matter, of course, is does he have a presence? Does he have a position? Is he willing to play that game? That's the real question here, right? Well, listen, if you would like to get on Team Hanny, Team Hanny should have a triangle. Team Hanny should, there should be a love triangle situation happening. I fully endorse that, but I I feel like we are going to be opening ourselves up to a world of teen hate, which, like, obviously I welcome too. 
I fucking sure, love that. But I think that any teen worth their salt is going to tell you if there's no drama, it's going to get boring. I mean, the other teen couple that you have me follow, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is how our relationship works, right? It's a series of obligations and demands. Yes. The other teen couple that you have me follow uh, is uh, Chloe Moretz and Brooklyn Beckham. Right. And, uh, you know, and I had to be helped with some of the, like, deep cuts in the subtext and what was happening Kathleen last week. Kathleen also participated, P.S. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, but again, it's about the drama. You're not with me. I'm not with you. Who's that other bitch in his picture? Oh, it's his cousin. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, is this kind of the way they were posting when they broke up the last time, etc. There has to be a story. This is, you know, I talked about sort of the math of television storytelling. And if we really take this seriously and don't talk about it because it's on the cover of Tiger Beat, stories are, they need to rise and fall in action. Things need to be good and then bad, up and then down. That's how a dramatic story goes. You think everything's going to be okay for your favorite and then things are not okay. The way that they are deploying the story turns, the rises and falls in the story are different maybe. They're on social media uh, but they have to play them out. They need the dramas and the changes and the turns and the new people in order to stay relevant. I see what you're saying from the perspective of a storytelling value. That said, you need to be at a certain level of maturity too to understand that what you need is not necessarily what you want. The 14-year-olds who are hashtagging Hanny don't have that nuance yet. They just want hashtag Hanny for life forever. I'm telling you. I get it, but I don't think you need the maturity you're talking about to satisfy your lizard brain. Like, this is what I love about entertainment and television and so forth. It's like, you know, do you ever hear, uh, if somebody, you hear somebody singing and they're off key, you know that they're wrong, right? Even though you don't necessarily know why or how they should fix it, you know they're wrong. Or if you like a song, you're in it and you stay there because it's doing what it's supposed to. It's sort of satisfying your pleasure centers. And anybody who watches anything, follows any couple, any anyone for entertainment is, even though they don't know it, is looking for twists and turns, rising and falling action. This is the master domain of the Kardashians, right? There's always something. Uh, and similarly, whether these two are precocious social media geniuses or whether there are adults behind them who are managing them, obviously there is because uh, Chicken Girls, which uh, I have not yet watched, but which I am going to binge as soon as we press stop on this podcast <laughs> – uh, is, you know, looks to have a decent amount of production value. Uh, obviously somebody knows that this is a, a story and story needs conflict or all those 14 year olds you talk about are, are not going to stick around right now. You are the conflict right now. You <laughs> asking for the 14 year olds to yell at you, you are providing the external conflict, but soon it's going to be Lyle Lovett. 
Lyle Lovett. I can't wait to meet their Lyle Lovett if there is going to be one. Are we tweens right now? If you are an adult going to your adult job as you listen to this podcast, are you shocked that we are spending this much time on hashtag Hanny? Uh, or are you into the drama and development here? I, I'm genuinely curious about uh, where everybody falls here. The Brangelina of Generation Z. Postscript, before we move on, for extra credit, look at the cover of Tiger Beat that is embedded in the article. I did not know any of the celebrities who were named on the cover. I was going to say that. <laughs> there is one who I think Mackenzie Ziegler is the younger sister of Maddie Ziegler, who was yeah. on Dance Moms, who is now Saya's alter ego. Uh, but otherwise... Carson Luders, Thomas Doherty, who's like hashtag Bay. No idea. So study up. Let us know if you care or if you're following a, an over 20 hashtag policy from here on in. And finally, we are ending today on Jay-Z and his new video for his song Family Feud off the album 444. The video was directed by Ava DuVernay with cameo appearances by so many awesome people. Let's pause here and say video is a misnomer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if you saw the articles as I did, you were like, oh, wow, I want to see all these people in this video. Uh, and then you thought to yourself, well, I don't have title, so I guess I'll see it when somebody pirates it. Uh, it's a short film, mm -hmm. uh, hence directed by Ava DuVernay. Um, it's a like an eight-minute opus Yes. It's an eight-minute opus, and at first when it was advertised, because, like, I think it was last Thursday, they introduced a 30-second preview, and then and, – oh, and during that 30-second preview, it was, like, a shot of Beyonce, and everybody was like, oh, my God, Beyonce's going to be in this video. Um, so when I went into reactivating my title <laughs> <laughs> so that – and then yelling at myself because this happens all the time. I let my fucking title lapse. And then this kind of shit happens. And I'm like, fuck, why did I let it lapse? Um, anyway, I reactivated my title. And then I watched it. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, that was almost misleading. The whole Beyonce's going to be in the video thing. Because, like, it ended up being so much. Not that you can be more than Beyonce. But Beyonce wasn't the main event. Right? No. Uh, first of all, thank you for reactivating your title so that I could see this. Um, and yeah, no, Beyonce is neither the opening nor the closing image. She's not even the most memorable part of the narrative, um, which is hilarious. There's excellent headwear. Uh, but otherwise, no, she's she's a, a, a supporting player in this in this thing. I mean, I think we have to really explain to people what it is. Uh, if, if you don't know, uh, if you also have let your title lapse, uh, let's explain what we're talking about here. So it, it takes place in the future. And also in the past. Yep. Um, so it's one of these future but hybrid Shakespearean dramas, a family drama opening with um, an angry Michael B. Jordan like, yeah, <laughs> sweeping up a staircase wearing a cape. 
Then he has uh, an interaction with Tandy Newton, who is his sister, relative, somebody. Uh, they are having a, uh, they are struggling over a throne, literal and metaphorical. He is then stopped by, are we spoiling all of it? Well, I don't know. Like, if you don't have title, you can't see it, or you or you have to pirate it. So let us just tell you about it. Like, if you don't want to spend your money on title. So it's story time with Elaine and Duana. <laughs> so get comfy. Okay, so Michael B. Jordan and Tandy Newton are fighting. He gets violent with her, and then Trevante Rhodes steps in to defend Tandy, kills Michael B. Jordan. And is knifed in the spleen for his trouble. Yes, because Tandy is like, uh, whatever, so you saved me in this instance, but it's not his, it's not yours, it's mine. That's like the preamble to the preamble, you guys. <laughs> it gets gloriouser. Cut to. Well, I mean, so this is then, uh, I should point out that I was watching this while I don't think you've ever looked at me that consistently uh, for eight minutes mm-hmm. as the story unfolded uh, in the phone in my hand. So yeah, this is all about a political struggle and whether or not the president in the year 204044 yeah uh you know needs to address the infighting in his in his past uh in his family and we sort of get a sketch of the family history and there's battle scenes and there's all kinds of deliciousness and I'm just going to spoil it for you and say the music doesn't start until like the 6 minute mark <laughs> Yeah, no, no, Jay-Z doesn't start until the six-minute mark. Yes, yeah, agreed. Um, and so this is, a, you know, he's sketching a future in which women are the leaders. Uh, there's a parliament uh, that is presided over by Mindy Kaling uh, that is entirely attended by women. And there's one woman in particular, and you pointed this out to me, uh, that the woman who was sort of the architect of the future that uh, future presidents now get to work in, that woman is? That woman is the grown Blue Ivy. <laughs> <laughs> Email me if you're like me and did not see this symbolism right away. Um, but uh, there are all kinds of women... At the table, you've seen the pictures tweeted by Ava DuVernay and others. Uh, There's this parliament that's attended by uh, Rosario Dawson and Rashida Jones and... Constance Wu. Yeah, and... Brie Larson. Brie Larson, oddly. (laughs) Uh, Niecy Nash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mindy Kaling, as previously mentioned. Uh, But Blue Ivy Carter is played by, uh, by Susan Kelechi Watson, who is I've called her TV's most beloved tertiary character. She plays Randall's wife on This Is Us. She plays opposite uh, Sterling K. Brown and is awesome. Uh, but yeah, as you say, is playing uh, the, 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 the savior of the modern world. So that, I guess, is set in like, what, 2050? Yes. When Blue will be, I don't know, 40 some odd. So, yes, she plays the savior of the modern world, uh, and they fix everything, and now the world is is fantastic. And, you know, the symbolism is lost on nobody, right? It is a... It's not co- subtle. It's a collection of only women, mostly women of color, all but one are women of color who fix the world, who change it all, uh, and who make the modern utopia in which... 
everybody now lives, including the future president, circa 204044, uh, who's being interviewed by Jessica Chastain. Correct. Is she, like, what do we feel like her job is? Like, the interrogator, the um, inquisition? Like, maybe a prime minister of some sort, perhaps? Uh, or, or a, you know, a, uh, I don't know, a house speaker? She has an accusatory tone, for sure. Uh, but she's also, like, there's also, like, Hunger Games uh, <laughs> clothing and hair choices being made in order to show us that it is, in fact, the future. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then... We're in a in a Catholic cathedral, and Jay Z is confessing to Beyonce, who is the Pope, right? <laughs> and Blue's in a pew, observing it all. Yeah, I yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, dressed in white. I thought it was pink, and I actually thought that was a weird choice. No, it's white. Okay, all right. It's like literally the same dress that Susan Kalechi Watson is wearing. They could not be more different. <laughs> Susan Kalechi Watson. Susan Kalechi Watson is not wearing, like, a fur boa. Uh, but she is. Is she? Yes. Uh, okay, our fact checkers have uh, have done their research, and uh, I rescind my comment about the fur boa. There is a boa on both uh, the small and large blue ivies. However, uh, I still think blue's dress is more pink. No cutesy pun intended. That's most of it, but like you really have to watch it a lot to to process what what you're experiencing. Uh, I would suggest several viewings. So you said to me, I'm going to watch you while you watch it. But what did you think the first time you saw it? I obviously like was mind bugged because again, all the previews and the expectation was, oh, Beyonce and probably Blue are going to be in this video. Awesome. It's going to be like Jay-Z standing before the altar of Beyonce saying, I suck and I cheated on you, bad me, bad me, and she would measure out the punishment and the forgiveness. I did not expect that it would become this manifesto by Ava DuVernay. Like, as, as we said at the beginning, like Beyonce, I thought would be the main event, ended up being not the main event at all. Um, And listen, in my end of year, beginning of the year, optimism and delight um, because I have spent, you know, the last two weeks in bed just eating bonbons and watching bad movies and I'm generally in a better mood than I typically am. I had a fist pumpy moment, uh, you know, when I watched the women's round table, when I heard them debating, when I, and obviously, again, this is not subtle. What they're debating is the Second Amendment. They're debating gun violence. They're debating gun control. I really, really loved what Ava and Jay, what they're doing here. Well, they wrote it together, right? Like that's yep. the uh, that's the idea here is that the treatment or the short film was written by them both, uh, which means that they wrote some of the um, overt dialogue <laughs> in the first minute or so. That's fine. We'll excuse that. But uh, yeah, no, of course it's fist pumpy. Of course it's exciting. There's no argument there. It's always exciting when you get to watch something that is the way you hope the future is going to look. Although we should point out we kind of skimmed over a a battle revolution scene, which indicates that, of course, it's it's never without struggle. It's never without battle that these things happen. Fair? Fair. Yeah. Um, notably, of course, not like we should have to say this, but it feels notable. There is 
not a no white man anywhere in this scenario, which is a commentary in the absence of its commentary. Uh, and yeah, it's exciting. I feel like this is a lot of goddamn pressure on Blue, man. Am I wrong? I, you're <laughs> not where I was expecting to go, but where I wanted to go. Yes. I, this is from the moment that Blue was born and through her life, we have seen Blue anointed, not just by her parents, but by the public. Like, we are obsessed with Blue, too. Um, I guess so. Yeah. Like, you know, they really emphasize that that narrative, right? Uh, there's the only line I saw you mouth along uh, was about what's better than one billionaire? Two. Two. With the, you know. Yes. The idea being that the billionaires, of course, are creating uh, Blue Ivy Carter. Uh, again, no mention of Sir or Rumi, who in theory are sharing said thrones. I just, I don't know. There's a lot of pressure on this little girl. But I, you know. Just save the world <laughs> is all. Just save the world. Just assemble the best collection of minds you can find. And uh, there were like 10 of them around the table. It's not huge. And just fix the world, if you wouldn't mind, please. Oh, and before you're 50, hurry it up. Do you remember when the formation video dropped? I mean, yes, it's <laughs> seared in my memory. I literally know where I was, but more exactly. specifically. It was like 5 o'clock on a Saturday, and we texted each other immediately. Yes, of course. Um, so Blue's in the formation video, and of course, and the, the scene that she appears in first is when she's dancing, you uh -huh. know, and the line in the song is… I like my baby air with baby hair and afros. That is when Blue comes on screen. And so, of course, Beyonce being Beyonce, that was specifically the edit, right? Show Blue right now. And that kid is smirking. Well, and let's be clear, because we had to really uh, investigate the lyrics to, to find the layers here. This is a uh, shout out to our favorite lyric site, Genius. I like my baby heir, H-E-I-R, the heir to the throne, the narrative that continues with everything they say, with baby hair, H-A-I-R, A, she's a baby, B, of course, baby hair is a, a you know, something that African-American women have talked about in terms of their hair and the style and the way that it is, uh, you know, that it's something they embrace and see as part of their style. Uh... There's layers on layers here, and they're presenting their, what, then four-year-old, then three-year-old? Mm -hmm. And she's smirking. <laughs> she's smirking. Um, and then earlier this year, Jay-Z, when 444 came out, released um, Blue's Freestyle, Boom Shakalaka, and all her lines in that, and she, she basically is like, I'm here. You better be ready. I mean… Is it possible we talk a lot about the choices that young celebrities have or don't have? In the case of a Beyonce, Jay-Z, and a Blue Ivy, is it like taking it away from show business? Is it, is it almost like duty, legacy? Yeah, again, I say it's pressure. Yes, they are overtly saying this is the theme that they've been talking about for 
at least the last few years, at least since they became parents, right? The idea that, uh, I mean, we haven't even talked about the song or the lyrics, but, uh, you know, he says, like, nobody wins when the family feuds, uh, that basically the idea is our family needs to be focused on creating this heir, creating this next generation, this legacy, so that she can save the world. Again, not hyperbole if you are watching this video, but they have been focused for years on the idea that they are going to give her everything and that she is arguably, I'm in a hyperbole here, but stay with me, that she is arguably the black woman most set up for success and world domination that we have ever known, certainly in this age, right? Money is no object. Power is no object. She mm -hmm. has everything. She is everything. She was going to inherit their entire wealth until those goddamn twins <laughs> came along. Um, so yeah, they're basically saying we are positioning her to rule the world. Now, this is where I, I find it, the conversation becomes fascinating and interesting because there are people out there who will be listening and they'll be rolling their eyes like, fuck you, who, who do you two think you are um, to foist your baby heir upon us and basically say that she's more special than anyone else? Oh, sorry. You mean uh, who are they, not who are we? Well, the haters. Yeah, Let's, sure, yeah. sure. Um, sure. That's like, it happens all the time when… Um, for instance, if I'm on the social um, and I call her the queen, Beyonce, I can see the eye rolls. She's just a pop star. She's just a singer. You know, she's an entertainer. Like, whatever. You stop worshipping her. We even get emails, right? Kathleen calls her my queen or our queen. We have referred to Beyonce in, you know, a way that is like, who else has entertained us in this generation um, other than Beyonce? And we get the emails like, stop fucking licking Beyonce's ass. And like, it's too much the way you guys talk about her. So I get it. There are going to be people who are like, oh my God, this video is ridiculous. Basically, they're saying Beyonce is going to be the savior of the free world. But to go back to what you said about pressure, I mean, there are certain institutions where we've accepted a child being anointed and it goes, it goes without challenge. Like, Prince George is not going to be a plumber. Right, for sure. Um, that's an established system uh, whereby he's not going to be a plumber. He's going to rule England for as long as uh, that monarchy exists. Well, not that he can't, he can't be a plumber. He can only be one thing. That's right. That's right. Um, and so, yes, there's pressure. But I think this is what's so fascinating to me is that this is where this is that great phrase about art imitates life, right? Because I can see it all. Beyonce and Jay-Z are entertainers. They are singers and performers and artists and business people. They are entrepreneurs. They are working very, very hard to expand their reach and their power. But this is what's so fascinating and so, I don't know, next level about what they're doing here, they are overtly positioning their daughter for much, much more. They are saying so in so many words, right? They are saying, yes, we have all this money and we have all this power and we are grooming her to be all of the things. 
it, it, they're not suggesting that she is going to be the second coming of entertainment. We may well watch her be a, you know, a singer, a dancer, a music revolutionary, but I think they are overtly saying that's almost the floor of what she can achieve, of what they expect. Uh, I think we are being positioned to see her as a a diplomat, a world leader, etc. And forget us for a second, because that's, you know, on some level, that's entertainment. Maybe it's child exploitation. Maybe it's a million things. But what does that do for her? If you are told from birth that you can be anything, can she? Can't she? Should she? What if she wants to be a dentist? Is that good enough? George can't be a dentist. No, he can't. Uh, you know, and I said earlier she might arguably be the most powerful, you know, young black woman. Uh, Sasha and Malia Obama are probably share that role, are, are walking that path ahead of her because the entire world is open to them. The difference is that they were not told they were born into glory. Uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce are creating a narrative that overtly says, uh, as you pointed out, like, she's anointed. Is it irresponsible? Is it audacious? Is it both? I don't know if it's irresponsible. I mean, this is the, like, this is the hilarious mindfuck of parenting, right? Nobody knows until the end whether any of the choices they make are correct or not. And no matter what you see as a correct choice, it might not be the same correct choice for a different kid. Uh, Everybody has a sample size of one. So I have no idea how she will feel about this kind of iconography uh, when she's an adult. Who can know? I keep thinking about your favorite, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross who was the daughter of Diana Ross and I think had a mostly out-of-the-spotlight upbringing, yes? Um, Until, like, she started modeling, I would say, right? Sure, which was, like, a more or less adult choice. She was 17 or 19 or whatever. So there were big shoes to fill there, but she kind of went to the left. She is a comedic actress. She's not a singer. It's not directly following in her mother's footsteps while still being influenced by the fact that, you know, your mother is Diana Ross. There's a, there's something there. Uh, But when you're told at age three and four and six that you're going to be everything, all the things, and we don't know, maybe they sit around at home and tell her this is all like, garbage and this is not what we really think and it's just fun entertainment and isn't it fun that you got to come to work with mommy and daddy one day. But I really don't know. Is it irresponsible? Who knows? Or maybe it is tiger parenting at its best. Maybe like Laura Dern who was told you will come into your own in your 40s and 50s, uh, Blue Ivy being told you will save the world will motivate her to be that person. Despite the fact that I'm not a parent, I'm involved in a lot of conversations about parenting for various reasons. A lot of my friends are parents. I'm on a talk show and parenting topics are very popular on the talk show. So I hear a lot of the debate about what your priority is as a parent. 
and you and I, I think, come at it from similar perspectives because of our backgrounds. Well, this is the thing that makes me laugh so much is that you say, well, because I'm not a parent or despite the fact that I'm not a parent, but you're a child. So Mm -hmm. you have as much experience with some people's parenting, uh, i.e. your parents' parenting, uh, which again, it's a sample size of one. I only know what my parents chose and you only know what your parents chose. And given that both our parents were immigrants, yes, one of the guiding tenets of immigrant parenting is that your children will be better off than you. Must be. That's the whole point of immigrating, that you… Yes. All the sacrifices of leaving where you're from mm-hmm. and the culture that you know and everything that, you know, the roots that were put down by probably our immigrant ancestors decades or hundreds, decades or centuries ago, is that life will be better elsewhere and your children must be better elsewhere. Right. So in my experience, my parents never finished high school. My dad eventually did as an adult and then pursued a degree, but I was the first person in my family to graduate university. So then you have a different level. Right. So you have now the one generation that has graduated university. And so for those kids of the people who've graduated university, what's the next must be better then? So my sister and I talk about this a lot, that it will be almost impossible to replicate what our parents did. When I think about my parents uh, moving to a new country, a new culture, with no money and what they built and what they provided for us and how and the journey to make a you know if you sort of measure the the steps in some unmeasurable distance to travel the same distance on the ruler if this metaphor is working out for you uh i think we would have to be astronauts and and you know or or medical revolutionaries in order to have started at the level that they provided for us and made similar jumps, right? Right. So now you're Beyonce and Jay-Z. Right. (laughs) And you, each individually, have fulfilled your parents' desires that you must be better than what they were. They made enormous jumps, right? Like uh, Jay-Z famously grew up in the Marcy Projects. Beyonce grew up in a more middle-class life, but… I think her success is well beyond what her parents could ever have imagined. Um, So if you are Beyonce and Jay-Z then, and that is what you've fulfilled for your parents, and now you have a child, that thread of immigrant mentality, uh, parents of color mentality, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away, but I don't know if you can create that hunger mm-hmm. and that agitation to succeed and go beyond, I don't know if you can maintain the intensity of it over generations. I don't know. I could be wrong. Uh, but they often talk about, there's an expression, uh, I think it's shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yes. Have you heard this expression? Yes. I was just going to bring that up. 
the idea that um, shirt sleeves, of course, meaning people who worked without jackets or or suits or et cetera, uh, that people work in sort of relatively, uh, what do we say, um, relatively like hands-on jobs that then ascend to maybe becoming executives or even, uh, you know, sort of leaders in a community, uh, that they're the next generation uh, is sort of more complacent and that the children of that complacent generation maybe then have to work for a living again, right? That's the sort of idea there. Right. Did I sum that up? Yeah. And then to go back to the video, what Jay-Z is saying is that that three generations is not happening to this family. In 400 years, what we are creating now is the seed to literally an empire, a royal family. Because as we've discussed on this podcast before, what they're talking about is, uh, you know, generational transfer of wealth and inherited power and capability and uh, the belief that you can, in fact, own and create and dominate fields is something that has not existed for black families uh, for certainly generations. And that that is what they are overtly creating and giving back to Blue, that they are essentially starting a dynasty with one child. And so when we talk about generations and that, you know, you you talked about three generations, what, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves? I believe that's the expression. Here in Canada, the the statistic that always, um, that I, I have been thinking about a lot this year, maybe not statistic, but what many experts have said, here in Canada, we we have discussed briefly here on this podcast um, our country's relationship with our Indigenous people. And we don't have to go into history lesson here about Canada and this country's shameful treatment of Indigenous people, but um, I read that in one of the Truth and Reconciliation reports that they said that it could take at minimum seven generations for the trauma of history and how Indigenous people have been treated and what they've been through to be fully dealt with, reconciled. Sure. Uh, and so it will excised. be… Excised? Excised. It mm-hmm. will be seven generations from now, even before… I don't know if this is the right analogy, but even before they can get to being able to uh, present themselves at the start of the race in line with everybody else. So when we talk about generational effects and transfer and generational improvement, um, you can't compare trauma. But for Black Americans and for two people like Beyonce and Jay-Z, whose ancestors were slaves, I wonder by the time you count to 2444, is that seven generations? Uh, Probably. I mean, you know, we'd have to do, uh, what's a generation, 50 years? Yeah, probably. That might be seven or even nine, uh, I think. Uh, Yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh, to say we are sowing the seeds. And this is what's so interesting. They yeah. are entertainers. 
that's what they're doing. This is entertainment that we can consume for a fee, but they're also creating a manifesto. Uh, it's worth mentioning uh, that, you know, the the musical part of this film takes place in a church, and I'm listening to us talking, going, they're essentially almost creating a faith, a religion. They're being overt about going, this is what we believe, this is what we pledge our allegiance to. Yes, they are pledging their allegiance to the hope, the ambition that seven to nine generations from now, in 2444, the ruling royal family, if we want to call it, of America, will have been the descendants of Blue Ivy Carter um, with all its attendant family Shakespearean drama. And that is, on one level, deeply hubristic to create a word. That is, yeah, it's phenomenally... uh, egotistical to say we are going to be the creators of. Until you think about the founding fathers. Uh, You know, I was thinking as we watched the film that Canadians and uh, and so many other nations know so much about American politics and policies and the Declaration of Independence because they love talking about it because it's in entertainment all the time. Uh, So on the one level, yeah, it's hugely egotistical to say we are creating the descendants who will create and heal the nation and the world. On the other hand, didn't a whole bunch of white men do just that? Isn't that the point of Hamilton? Uh, That they were like, no, we have the foresight to create a new nation and the children of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr are going to inherit the nation and run with it? Like, that was what they said. So is it that different? I don't know. That's how we're starting 2018. An optimistic beginning? Absolutely optimistic. There's been so much shedding of shit we don't need that, yeah, I love the idea that 2018 is where we go, okay, why not us? Why not now? Let's go. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy 2018. Happy award show season. It's starting. Thanks for listening. As always, thank you for supporting another year of Show Your Work. We're so excited to do this for many, many more weeks to come. Continue to send us your thoughts and your emails and shout at us um, on Twitter or on email. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Leave comments, leave reviews. Thanks again. Bye. Okay. Oh my God. Sorry. Do you know who, Tom, uh, like, we're off thing now, but do you know who Thomas Doherty is? Who? So, Thomas Doherty is a Scottish actor best known for his roles as Harry Hook in Disney's Descendants 2. So, this is what kills me. That was the first job Sean got in Vancouver. Yeah. Was on Descendants 2. And he was like, you know, some Disney movie. I have heard more about Descendants 2 in the last year. Like, it is genuinely, it's not even a fucking original. It's a sequel. Descendants 2 is a sequel. And it is the, like, the biggest money-making movie for this age right now. Oh, that's why Dove Cameron is so popular. Who's that? The girl in it. In what? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, like, who? oh, and they're dating. (laughs) (laughs) Turn the mic back on.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.